You're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, and my guest for the next half hour is Kevin Muir, who's a market strategist at East West Investment Management. He's also an author of the Macro Tourist Newsletter. He hosts his own podcast called The Market Huddle, and also a very prominent guest on finance Twitter. Kevin, welcome to our, our show. Thanks for being uh, Thanks. It's been a pleasure to be with you today, Jeremy. I know you're on vacation. You're calling in from the the hotel vacation. I apologize for, for interrupting that, but uh, it, it's great to have you on. What an interesting week for us to be talking here. A lot of volatility in the markets. For sure. It's actually, um, I wouldn't blame you as much as I blame Trump for throwing a wrench into the uh, into the markets and making this a re- something that you kind of, uh, you're upset to be away from the office. Yeah. What? Um, tell us a little bit about your background and a little bit about East-West Investment Management. Sure. So um, I was actually an equity derivatives trader at RBC Dominion Securities in the late 90s. Um, I actually did that for a living. So that was kind of, I did arbitrage between the, the futures and the stock market. And I did, I uh, ran an option book. And uh, then my daughter, her first daughter was born. She was born with actually a heart defect. And I had kind of one of these moments where I questioned what was important in life. So uh, I decided that I'd had enough of the bank and I went off and decided I was going to go and trade for myself. And I, I figured I could always go work for a hedge fund if something went wrong. Well, one year turned into two, which turned into five, which turned into 18. The next thing I knew, my daughter was off to university and I'd kind of been trading for myself for the past couple of decades. Uh, I'd always wanted to manage money. So I went out and reached out to a buddy that uh, had started a boutique investment management firm called East West Investment Management. And I've uh, been working with him for the past year. Wow. Very interesting background there. Um, and, and so where, who, who are the typical you know, clients East West is, is serving? So we um, handle basically high net worth individuals and families, and one of the things that we do is uh, we allocate to different managers and uh, run the portfolios for these uh, kind of multi, you know, hundreds of million dollar families. Okay, um, and so you and you you got into writing and doing your own podcast. I mean, where um, I mean, what's what's been your focus on 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 that content side? Well. When I was working and trading for myself, I was kind of, uh, although I had a partner, we uh, it was still a little boring and I missed the trading desk. So one of the things that I did was I started to uh, write a, a, a kind of a diary. It started off as a diary. You know, a lot of people will say that a, tr- a good trader, one of the things is that you should always reflect and uh, write. And uh, I kind of started writing this diary and the people would phone me up and ask me what I thought about the market and I would send them kind of my post. And uh, next thing I knew, I was just getting kind of fed up of always asking these buddies that they wanted to find out what I was thinking, so I just stuck it on the net thinking nobody would read it. And one thing turned into another. Next thing I knew, I would go downtown and I would people would say, oh, I read your blog, and uh, I realized that it ended up being a terrific marketing tool. And uh, one of the things about um, finance is that it's often very boring, and being kind of working for myself, I, I could make it a little bit more fun, and that was one of the things I focused on. I, I really did try to make it, uh, you know, content that's fun to read and also teaches you something. Yeah. And I mean, that's one of the things that caught my eye this week. I mean, I've been following you on, on Twitter for a while, but you had a 25 uh, sort of tweet thread on, on what's going on, the fiscal side, the low rates of what's going on around the world. And it was sort of interesting. I mean, it sort of went viral in a lot of ways. Give us your sense on low rates, what it means, uh, and what it means for all the governments who what they should be doing, and how and how you're looking at that situation. Well, a 
although I understand why people are flooding into the U.S. bond market because it's still offering a nominal positive yield and there's all sorts of signs of recession, I think if we step back and take a longer-term view of the whole bond market uh, throughout the world, it's not hard to argue that, uh, that we're not in a bubble. Uh, I kind of look at the the European bond market, the German boomed at negative uh, 60 basis points or whatever it is, and it's the epitome of a bubble in that you are guaranteed to lose money on both, you know, a real and a nominal basis unless you are find a way to sell to somebody at any even greater negative yield. So I looked at this and I said, this is just absolutely ridiculous that uh, this is what's occurring and I, I kind of thought to myself, I'm going to write something to explain my views of why I think that this is actually setting up to be one of the, the next great bubbles that we've experienced. We had the dot-com bubble in the late 90s. Then we had the credit uh, slash real estate market bubble in the mid-2000s. And now I think we're in the sovereign debt bubble of uh, the late 2010s. And the reason that I, 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 I say this is because and, and well, actually, before we do that, let's go through why I like. There's a lot of people that'll talk about the bond bear market and why it's a bubble, and then they'll talk about why they think it's going to collapse. And and I just like to dispel some of those reasons because I'm not the kind of uh, you know my argument doesn't rest on the idea that the the U.S. will be not able to fund itself. I don't think there's a ch- any chance in the world that they're not going to be able to fund themselves, uh, or the fact that the Chinese will stop buying the bonds and that, that that'll cause yields to rise. No, I, I don't think that's the case. And all these kind of uh, hyperbolic kind of arguments about why the bond market is going to collapse, I think, are wrong. I actually am a bond bear for good reasons, meaning that I think that eventually we are going to get growth and we're going to get inflation. And when we do that, we're going to look back and we're going to say that investing in a 30-year government, meaning U.S. government bond, at uh, you know 2% or I guess it's even lower than 2% today, doesn't make any sense because the, US, the, the, the Federal Reserve's target rate is 2%. So, you know, at the, like... Even if things, if they just manage and just to meet their target rate, all we're going to do over the next 30 years of owning that bond is you're going to basically get a 0% real return. Now, you may ask why I believe that this is going to occur, because a lot of people say that this has been happening for a long time. There's been a lot of people saying that we're going to get inflation, we're going to get inflation, and it hasn't manifested itself. And some of those big kind of highly, you know, uh, visible kind of proponents of this idea that deflation is inevitable. It's the Gary Schillings of the world, or even the Raul Pauls. They all believe that this is kind of a secular trend, that demographics are going to are going to cause inflation to go to zero, and in some cases below, and that the governments are incapable of creating inflation. Well, I, I don't believe that for a second. I, I believe that the governments can create inflation whenever they want to create inflation, but we've somehow managed to convince ourselves that we can't. And one of the reasons is is because we've been overly reliant on monetary policy for the past 30 years. So we've gone and relied on every single time that there's been a, a hiccup in the economy, a little bit of a downturn. We've relied on the Federal Reserve or the ECB or the Bank of Japan to stick liquidity into the system and actually prop up the economy. So in doing so, we've kind of encouraged um, the private sector to take more and more debt. And the uh, bond bulls have, have correctly pointed out that it's taken more and more easing to kind of fix every single time there's been a problem. 
and I, I don't disagree with that one bit. And I, and I do, I do acknowledge that if nothing were to change and we were to continue to try to fix every problem with monetary stimulus, then the bond market bulls will be correct that this will be a great buy and that we are just going to go to more and more obscene negative rates. But I, I look at this and I, I think we're at an inflection point where we realize that this, this absurdity of the situation, and we look at, like for example, the ECB. The ECB right now, their overnight uh, lending rate is minus 40. They're about to go to minus 60 because their economy is in the tubes. Do we really think that that extra negative 20 basis points is going to somehow fix something? You know, and... and I, I just, I'm kind of just amazed that they continue to do monetary stimulus, well, extreme monetary stimulus, with fiscal austerity. Because yeah. if we think about the, uh, the, let's take, for example, the German government. The German government is running a surplus of 1.5% of GDP. And if we look at the Italians, that they're so mad at the Italians and, they're, and they're, they're, the Germans are saying, no way you guys can run a, a loose fiscal policy. And their, their um, budget that they want to run is a 2.5% of GDP deficit. Well, America right now is running a 4.5% deficit to GDP, percent of GDP. So I, I think that we've kind of hit this point where the people are going to wake up and realize that going and trying to fix everything with this kind of more and more negative rates isn't going to work. And in doing so, they're going to realize that in, in Europe, for example, the government can go and spend money and actually make their citizens better off in terms of from a, from a nominal point of view because they're getting paid to spend. It is fascinating. You look out to, you know, the th we talk about the 30-year bond in the U.S. You know, the Switzerland 30-year bond is negative 55 basis points. The Netherlands, the Dutch, negative 15. Germany's 30-year bond is negative 13. These are nominal rates without, uh, you know, not like the 10-year the tips in the U.S., which just went negative again. Um, you know, it's so it, it's fascinating. I mean, I, in addition to some of the German, you heard, you know, the crisis, if Germany goes to a crisis, they start, maybe they can start spending a little bit. Um, but there's also talks out of the Netherlands, which is seeing these negative rates and saying, maybe we should be starting to ramp up some infrastructure or investing. And, and we, you know, there's more of this conversation on MMT and will we actually do the borrowing and, and, and just try to ramp up spending. Is that is that your sense that now with all these negative rates, it's just there? It's going to be too irresistible if you're paid to borrow. Why not put this? Well, spending for sure. And not only that, I believe the monetarism is basically being neutered, and it's not going to work anymore. So you see that today there was an op-ed by Larry Summers, who's poo-pooed MMT for the longest time, and being just kind of very negative on it, and. For what, what he is saying is very similar, and you know, I would call it a hi hybrid of MMT that he's kind of adopted, and realize that that monetarism just is is no longer effective, and there's we have no choice but to do fiscal. And uh, you know, I do believe that the idea that we keep trying to put more and more stimulus through monetary means is just it's ridiculous. And and I originally. Uh, when the 2008 crash happened and we had the long bond at 1%, I can't remember, what, the long bond was 1%. It was way down there, or no, sorry, the 10-year was 1%, and the long bond was 2%. And we were about to engage in quantitative easing. I said to myself, why are we doing quantitative easing? Why don't we just go and the government, uh, the bond market is begging for some supply. People want a safe asset. Why doesn't the government actually go do it? 
and issue, you know, a trillion dollars of long bonds and go put fiber to everyone's house or go fix every road or, you know, um, uh, figure, figure out the bridges and infrastructures. People forget that Eisenhower went and put all those people, all those GIs that were coming back from the war to work and, and, and made America one of the greatest um, kind of societies and economies out there because of the fact that they had such a strong infrastructure. And we've kind of uh, adopted this idea that all government spending is bad, and in doing so, we've we've basically are, are uh, kind of dooming ourselves to poor growth because the reality is that the private sector is no longer able to spend, so there is no demand out there, and the government should be stepping up and, and providing that demand by spending the money that no one else wants to spend. We're talking with Kevin Muir, who's the market strategist, East-West Investment Management, about his his tweet storm this week on the bond bubble, negative rates, uh, what to do, and, and view that, that these low and ne- negative rates may not be persistent forever. Um, where do you think the spending should occur, Kevin? If, 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 if these governments see these ultimate low rates, is it, it is like that Eisenhower big infrastructure program. Is that the path of least resistance? Or are there other areas of spending that you think should offer the higher higher returns from the government side? One of the things about MMT is that I, I wrote this article way back when, and it was describing uh, MMT. And, and I, I was kind of shocked when I first learned about it. And, and to be truthful, I, I stumbled upon it a couple of years ago, and I, and I asked a buddy about it because I, didn't, I was kind of embarrassed that I didn't know what it stood for and what it meant. And I went and looked into it, and in doing so, I kind of learned um, that Stephanie Kelton is the is the person that's you know at the forefront of it. But then there was all these other professors that that talked about um, what MMT meant and and how it worked. And one of the things that one of the professors that I really enjoyed his, his uh, kind of his commentary was this fellow by the name of Randall Ray. And Randall talked about the fact that MMT has two parts, which is a descriptive part, meaning explaining how the economy works and how a modern-day fiat system kind of occur. Uh, you know, what it really happens when, when money, the plumbing that uh, is underneath all of the finance. And then there's the prescriptive part. And what he says is, after understanding the descriptive part, the society should make a prescriptive part a decision about what to spend it on. And as a trader, I don't really worry too much about what a society, you know, should be doing in terms of, uh, like, I don't have an opinion. Like, I have my own personal opinion, but I don't think it really matters what I believe they should spend it on, whether I believe it should be a tax cut, whether I believe it should be infrastructure spending. It doesn't really matter. What matters is kind of a trader's investor is what will be done instead of what should be done. So I kind of focus more on that part of it, and I look through and I look around at how MMT is gaining traction, how, you know, even people that won't admit that they're kind of coming around to the idea, like Ray Dalio wrote a piece, and it was very MMT kind of uh, sympathetic, um, and now we have Larry Summers, and I, and I say to myself, well, it doesn't really matter what I think should be done, it's what will be done, and I'm not sure what society will choose, whether they'll choose infrastructure, whether they'll choose tax cuts. And all I say is that more fiscal is coming. Whether it's, you know, where it comes, I'm not sure. I will adjust portfolios based upon what uh, that occurs, like whether it's infrastructure, whether it's a green deal, like you have AOC that's talking about her climate change uh, initiative and stuff like that. And that will affect how the markets react. But I don't really kind of feel that my uh, personal opinion about what should be done is actually that important. So, so on this, you know, you came from a, a trader background. You're trading for yourself for a while. Um, 
what do you think about, you know, would you actually get to shorting bonds? Is it worth trying to short bonds? You could actually get paid to short some of these bonds and with the negative yields in Europe. Oh, for sure. I, I, I'm a big believer that I've been waiting for the Germans to indicate that they're willing to actually spend. And when they do so, I believe that the German Bund will be short of the lifetime. Like I, yeah. I like that's how that's how positive I am. The one thing that you just I need to stress is that if they don't spend, if they continue down this road of extreme monetarism combined with fiscal austerity, then it will go a lot. The the, the rates could go to minus you know one percent, minus two percent, minus three percent. I saw Raul Paul the other day on Real Vision talking about minus three hundred percent on the the. the in the Europe because of the problems that he's envisioning a Euro bank, like a crash in the banks. And that is a very definite possibility. So I'm just, though, I'm aware that I, I think I understand what it would take for this to change, and I'm waiting for that change to occur. And then once it occurs, then I do believe that you should be kind of very definitely thinking about shorting those bonds, or at the very least, realizing that I kind of, in my tweet storm, I talked about the the, the old story about trading sardines. And uh, for those who don't know it, it's uh, there used to be, I can't remember where it was, but they used to trade sardines on this dock. And they would go back and forth, and they would trade these sardines, and there was a bubble that got created. And then finally the bubble collapsed. And when the bubble collapsed, one of the fellows that was left with the sardines opened it up. And uh, he realized he went to take a bite of the sardines because he figured at least he could eat the sardines. And he realized that the sardines were bad. And he looked at his buddy and he said, you know, uh, I, we've been trading these sardines all the time and, and they're, they're actually bad. And he says, of course, those, those weren't investing sardines. Those were trading sardines. And that's the one thing you need to realize about that these negative rates and these booms is that these are trading sardines, that there's no way that you're going to be a long-term holder of these things because by their very definition of negative rates, they are going to return a negative amount. So I'm just waiting for the, for the things to fall into place. And then it, it, when those happen, when I see the fiscal spending, and especially out of Germany, then I think it will be a terrific short. How, so we've been talking a lot about bonds and bonds uh, being in a bubble, and I'm very sympathetic to that view. Although, you know, Professor Siegel and I sort of wrote about this, uh, the 10-year tips being like 1%, and we looked at equity yields at the time. You would get you get 4 or 5% dividend yields. We're talking about like 2011-ish. And, uh, it, you know, you don't pick your own headlines in, in these, you know, columns, but uh, we, we're making the case that the, the, the equity premium was very high and very worth going to equities over bonds and uh and that was true, but the bonds continue to go go lower, um, or yields continue to go lower. I mean, how do you think about the other opportunities around the world today, given this ultimate low and negative yields? Well, there's there's no doubt that the the zero rates throughout the world are pushing uh, investors into riskier and riskier assets. Um, I I would look at it. I actually think that a lot of this. Um, this rally in the bonds, in the U.S. bonds, has been driven out of Europe, and that if we see everyone's focused on the U.S. situation, but I'm watching the European situation because I think that if it breaks, it'll break there. In terms of other things to own, um, you know, that, that's a great call, and it's been a difficult call to be long stocks, the you know, for the past few years, and I've been probably a little more bullish than most because a lot of people in the hedge fund community have been trying to pick a top and 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 talk about how this is all unsustainable um i i guess i, I guess i'm getting a little more nervous i'm 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 also a little concerned about the fact that as a as a share of the market cap of the whole world the united stocks the united states stock market um is, is becoming increasingly kind of uh, at record valuations 
So I look, and I'm sympathetic to the kind of impartial to owning emerging markets here. I know it's an out-of-favor, not-very-loved trade, uh, but I I do believe that there's an opportunity there because if you think about demographics and you think about growth and you think about um, where the growth will be coming going forward, there's a a good chance that emerging markets will will outperform the U.S. So right now on a valuation basis, they're actually trading at lower pegs like price-to-earnings growth than the Americans. I, I'm kind of thinking that eventually during the next cycle we'll see that that flip. The other thing that I kind of like is you, you mentioned tips. I love owning break-even trades, meaning that if you're long tips versus short bonds, that's probably one of my favorite trades. I think that uh, when when although I am kind of sympathetic to many of the MMTers' viewpoints, I think that like in all things that happen on Wall Street and in, in, in markets, once it comes, we'll do too much of it. We did too much monetarism, and we had kind of these crazy outlier kind of negative rates. When MMT comes or fiscal comes, because I don't like the word MMT because we're actually not going to do pure MMT. We're going to just do more fiscal. When that comes, it'll feel good at first. We're going to get a lot of kind of very uh, uh, kind of the, the economy will take off, and it'll feel really great. But eventually that will be abused, and we will do too much fiscal, and that will cause the very inflation that we think can't come. So I really love owning break-evens, which means like owning tips versus bonds. Hmm. And if I was somebody that was a long-term, long-only investor, at the very least, I, you know, maybe I wouldn't be shorting bonds in here, but I would be switching it into tips products. Interesting. Now, when you think about Europe, because you said everything in the U.S., well, not everything, but a lot of the U.S. yield lows are, are being caused by Europe lows. Is, is there a, you mentioned EM equities is something you like. Anything in, in Europe, given maybe the ECB can't just buy bonds, maybe they do expand to other assets, credit, equities, whatever the uh, the additional QE programs might be over there? Yeah, so I saw, I can't remember who, there was a big time kind of uh, market. BlackRock. Uh, sorry, who was it? It was a BlackRock, uh, both their CEO, their CIO, speculating yeah, they're going right. to buy. Yeah, that's right. He actually suggested that the QE was uh, ineffective on bonds, and therefore they should move to equity instruments. I think that is that's that kind of thinking is part of the problem. Uh, like, so let's imagine tomorrow they just gave up on doing, you know, uh, they gave up doing bonds QE and they moved to equities. So we would get this huge push in equities, and all the people that own those assets would feel richer. But are they really going to spend any more? Like that, this is part of the thinking that got us into all these sorts of problems. So I would never buy European equities because I anticipated the, the, the ECB moving and going and doing QE into equities. I think that's a terrible reason. I think it's very socially destabilizing. Now, having said that, if the, if the ECB said, we're going to go and we're going to allow um, – they're going to open up the fiscal and we're going to allow all European governments run like an extra 3% deficit to GDP for the next five years. Then I would go and I would buy um, European equities. I would short boons and I would buy European uh, – European uh, the currency hand over fist. And let me tell you why. You know, one of the things is people um, – don't realize this, but Trump has actually been the most MMT president that we had. And, and let me explain what I mean. So we were eight years into an economic boom, and most Keynesians and most kind of Austrians and all those kind of typical right-wing uh, economic thought. Uh, Kevin, we're, we actually ran out of time on our okay. show, um, but I love the conversation. This was fantastic. Um, you know, you can follow Kevin on Twitter, Kevin Muir, M-U-I-R. He's East-West 
Morgan Stanley's East-West Investment Management. We'll keep in touch with him on his bond bubble, the fiscal spending side. Uh, I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Martin Nawoga. You can listen to us our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. 